Welcome to the Sales Lead Dog Podcast, hosted by CRM technology and sales process expert, Christopher Smith, talking with sales leaders that have separated themselves from the rest of the pack. Listen to find out how the best of the best achieve success with their team and CRM technology. And remember, unless you are the lead dog, the view never changes. Welcome to Sales Lead Dog. Today I have joining me Joel Stevenson of Yesware. Joel, welcome to Sales Lead Dog. Great to be here. Thank you. Yeah, you bet. It's good to have you on, Joel. So, Joel, tell me about your current role in, in Yesware. Uh, yeah, I'm uh, CEO of Yesware. Uh, I'm actually not the founder of Yesware. I joined the company a little, little over four years ago. And um, Yesware is a sales productivity tool. So we uh, are built for salespeople and sales managers. We integrate deeply into the inbox and we save you time by automating manual activities that you'd have to do yourself and also provide um, intelligence and information that you can then use to, to be more productive and more effective as a seller. Yeah, that's a, such a needed tool uh, to, uh, to be effective as a sales uh, person these days using uh, uh, any kind of platform of engagement. But if you're not engaging effectively over email, it's a struggle. Especially now with the pandemic situation, everyone's a remote seller, whether they like it or not. Yeah. How have you guys embraced that in terms of, you know, uh, your strategy with Yesware? Yeah, well, we, I suppose we, we, we've never had a bigger opportunity as Yesware as a result of, of, of these changes, because if you think about, um, you know, I think probably the, the last study I saw on this was maybe four or five years ago, there was a view that there's 6 million non-retail sellers in the U.S. Right. And of the 6 million, about half of those were largely in person and about the other half was, were largely, remote, you know, give or take. And I think now it's probably, you know, 99% are, are mostly uh, remote and probably it'll go back you know, towards is things, you know, hopefully normalize more and more people doing things in person again, but I don't think it'll ever go back to the way it was. Um, and so, you know, if, if you think about being a remote seller, for a lot of people, the hub of your workflow is going to be in your inbox. And so you're going to naturally spend a lot of time there. And so by yes, we're being deeply integrated in your inbox, we're sort of integrated into the hub of your workflow um, with, with the outside world. And so we're we're just seeing more and more engagement with the platform and more and more opportunities to start to make Yesware a bigger and bigger part of people's uh, selling motions. Yeah, that's awesome. That's why I said it heavy on the show because it, it is a struggle for so many companies to, uh, to provide a platform or a tool for their sales team to really be effective at engaging over email, you know, it, it, it can be a struggle if you don't have a tool like Yesware. So yeah, that, yeah, that's right. I think there's, you know, there's been, uh, I mean, you know, going all the way back to the earliest days of sales technology, a lot of sales technology that's bought and not used. Um, so one of the things that we really try to uh, strike a balance on is complexity, but but not too much complexity so that uh, the learning curve is too high and doesn't get used. And we're also a, a freemium product. So we have a free tier of Yesware. So people just show up to yesware.com and start using it. So there's we've got to work in a little bit of a more user-friendly way than kind of some of the more traditional uh, top-down, you know, heavy pieces of software. Yeah, yeah, that's great. So thinking back over your whole career, Joel, what are the three things that have really driven and led to your success? 
Yeah, I'd be luck maybe the biggest one, but I suppose that that is probably not that helpful. But uh, <laughs> for, for your purposes, but um, yeah, I, as I look back, there's a few things. Uh, I think probably number one, because you know, because sort of starting in um, in a selling type of role, I think communication skills is probably the thing that's helped me the most. And I was uh, I did had some acting in my background, and I've done a you know, I've sort of always been in front of people and audiences. And so I always was able to sort of fall back on that, even when maybe I wasn't as prepared as I should have been, or I didn't understand maybe the, the level of hard work and preparation that was required to, to always succeed in success and, and, and things like sales. So that was helpful. Um, and then something I picked up a little bit later in my career was uh, sitting meditation. That's really been helpful to me in terms of focus um, and, uh, you know, really just being more intentional and more present um, with the things that I'm doing. I'm, I'm, I would say like, I'm really just starting to really reap the benefits of that now in my, in my forties. Um, and then the, the other thing was maybe a bit of a, a career transition that I had, which is I'd started in selling and, you know, mostly was sort of out in front of, you know, various customer facing roles. And then when I did my MBA, I had more of a quantitative focus there in finance. And then I worked for a very quantitative consulting firm right out of that. And so then I was sort of add, able to add sort of the, you know, externally facing skills with sort of the more internally facing um, analytical skills. And then that sort of helped me sort of move into bigger uh, management positions over time. Yeah, that's... Uh... Very interesting answers. You answered your that question very differently from people I've had on the show in the past. You started off by saying luck. Do you believe people create their own luck? Well, what's it? The thing, uh, you know, luck is when you know preparation meets opportunity or something like that. Um, right. Yeah, I, I I believe that's true to to some extent. I mean, certainly there's there are opportunities that are presented to people that they miss out on because they either didn't prepare enough or they didn't work hard enough or maybe in some sense they, they maybe just didn't have some of the fundamental capabilities that were required to take advantage of, of that situation. So I, I think that is true. But then there's also this, this notion that like the difference between like success and wild success is often luck because, you know, to be somebody that's you know, very successful over a long period of time. Like you probably have a lot of the same skill sets that the person that has been wildly successful over time. But maybe you, you know that person caught a break that you didn't. Um, I think is part of it. And then, you know, another aspect is, you know, I grew up in a middle class neighborhood. I mean, you know, I'm first generation college, but but relative to others, I had an awful lot of advantages just sort of growing up and going to good school and then going to good college and then joining a good company with good training. And so there were a bunch of things that were sort of structural to the system that I just, you know, benefited by just being born who I was when I was. Right, right. No, I, I agree with that completely. I mean, it's a lot of times we don't think about those advantages we're given because we still may be struggling, but in reality, we're st we're struggling, but we're struggling ahead of other people that didn't have those same advantages. So that's right. Um, tell me, uh, how did you get your start in sales? Yeah, I um, well, it's it's a little bit of um. I remember that we had a. I went to University of Illinois for my undergrad. I remember we had this. Um, this guy, Mike Muni, who was the founder of Act Software. I don't know if you remember oh, yeah. that. Oh, yeah, totally. 
back in the day. And I remember him saying something about, you know, he's just like, hey, like how many of you, you know, are in sales or plan to go into sales or something like nobody raised their hand. And he's like, well, I got news for you. Like you're all going into sales, whether you like it or not. Uh, and, you know, if you want to, uh, you know, if you want to build a skill set that's going to be useful for your whole career, like you might, you might think about, you know, building a, a selling skill set. And I had done a little bit with it be, um, uh, with, with another guy that I knew was a sort of a part-time job in college. And then I ended up um, applying for a whole variety of different jobs. And the job that I ended up getting that was seemed the most interesting at the time was with this company, and now it doesn't even exist, called GTE, which was one of the big regional telephone companies. Oh, that, yeah. yeah. Um, it, you know, that was one of the non-AT&T. This sort of had all of the non, you could argue the non-desirable areas of the country, uh, but, but they had some issues. But they were sort of known for um, having a really good training program um, and investing a lot in their in their folks. And so I thought, well, this is going to be a good opportunity because like, I don't know what I'm going to do in the long term, but I, I, I want to start in selling. I want to have a good foundation in selling. And so that program was about six months um, before you actually took your first territory, um, which, you know, when I think about how we, you know, I've onboarded salespeople in the organization, part of it, like that is, was a real luxury. Um, I think I didn't even appreciate it at the time. So that's, I just thought it was sort of a good place to start and I would see where things, you know, went from there. Six months is insane. I, I don't know of anyone who's doing a six month training, training program now. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it was, um, and there were some aspects of it that I think in retrospect, you maybe couldn't pull off now where we spent a month um, at twice at this, uh, GT had bought the old Braniff Air, 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 uh, <laughs> airline headquarters on the, the uh, DFW airport grounds. And this was a long time ago, like <laughs> it wasn't, uh, the area in between Fort Worth and Dallas, like, wasn't really that exciting. Right. Um, and so, you know, you've got, uh, I don't know, maybe we're 20 of us, you know, right out of college and you throw them into this hotel with, you know, with a month with each other and it's a bunch of salespeople. Yeah, there, there were, yeah, it'd be, it'd be hard. It maybe could be a reality TV show. <laughs> uh, yeah, that, that was a, that was sort of, I don't know if you could do that now, but we were there for a month. And then we went away back to the branches and then you had this whole giant checklist of things you had all these ride-alongs and right. you know, completing trainings and technical information and we were selling reasonably technical things yep. um, and then you went back for another month at the end to sort of finish off your education and sort of you know get certified if you will and then you were then you were thrown into whatever territory you were thrown into but yeah it was incredible to be able to watch um you know i don't know a hundred or more in-person sales calls before ever having to do my first one myself. Oh yeah. You talk about a learning experience, but it won't get any better than that, you know, just to be able to be a fat fly on the wall. Mm -hmm. Do you have any key takeaways from that period? Things that really set a foundation for you moving forward? Well, I do remember in the, one of the first ride-alongs I was ever on, it was, uh, we went to an insurance agency and um, the, the guy who was running the agency was the one who was making the telecom decisions. And so, you know, I mean, insurance agencies are sort of known for also having like pretty structured set of uh, sales trainings and philosophies and, and that sort of thing. And I remember that, you know, first he's like, oh, new, new guy, huh? He's, you know, and the first thing he said was, the only, here's, here's what you got to know about sales. God gave you, two ear, gave you two ears and one mouth for a reason. Don't ever forget that. <laughs> and... Um, 
And, you know, and I, I think that was, that, that is, you know, like a very simplistic thing that just stuck with me along with, you know, you know, how would you then use that? Well, you know, how do you use your mouth is, you know, we did a lot of the, the sort of the, um, you know, professional selling skills and sort of the Miller Hyman stuff and strategic selling and tactical selling and all that. And then, you know, eventually later got into spin selling, but a lot of it is really the, it's, it's really the questions that you're asking people, you know, it's like, it's so important. And so as I've, um, you know, developed in my sales career and as I've tried to, to bring new people on, I've always tried to focus on making sure that, you know, whatever sales team I'm responsible for, we, we ask good questions and we understand the customer's business. I, that is actually on my list of questions I ask, you know, my guests, um, is how do you teach someone to ask those good questions? Yeah, well, some of it, uh, I suppose there's, there's a portion of it that has to do with how you're wired as a person. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, we use a selling methodology here at Yesware called selling through curiosity. Um, uh, this guy, Barry Ryan put together uh, years ago. And, and that's part of it, I think, is like, like that name sort of captures some of the zeitgeist of it, which is you, you do have to be a curious person, I think, you know, in order to want to ask the right types of questions, because it's easy to say, like, you know, sort of simple yes, no types of questions that can get you into some trouble over time. But if you're, if you're really curious, like you want to know how this business works and you want to know, can I really help this person make a better business outcome? Like, can I get this person promoted? Like, like, and without like, like really asking us a series of, of interesting questions, it, it's hard to get to that. So I think it sort of starts with, you know, does the person have the interest and the aptitude in, in doing that sort of a, as a first Point. And then, you know, the second thing is, you know, what can you do uh, as part of your training and onboarding to help your reps understand the customer's challenges and, and their the, the business context under which they're operating so that they know. And so I think, you know, a good, a good structured training program of like the core selling skills, but then also with adapted to um, the, or, or sort of modified with whatever business or industry you're tending to sell into. Um, I think it can be useful. What role does empathy play in formulating those questions? Yeah, I, I think a, I think a big role in the sense that the the better a rep can do at putting him or herself in the customer's shoes, uh, the more likely you are to ask a good question, um, whether that's about you know, how does your business work or how the selling process works or, you know, trying to understand if, if you fully answered the, the, uh, the prospect's questions or trying to read body language to know maybe when you're pushing too hard or maybe when you're sort of very starting to lose the person um, uh, from an interest standpoint. Like I think all, all of those, uh, all of those things that maybe separate like so-so salespeople from really good salespeople I and mean, the empathy is a big, a big common factor in all those things. Right. If you could take one piece of knowledge you have today and go back in time and give that to the young version of Joel just getting started in sales, what would that be? I think discipline in the process. So, yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a set of, skills you have to develop, but then at, at some point you, you have to have a plan and work your plan, 
you know, not only for an individual deal, but for an entire territory. And, you know, you, you have to, you have to know that to get to a single yes, you've got to endure a hundred no's or whatever, however many it ends up being. And just understanding that, uh, without, without sort of making sure that you're putting in the effort to get the top of the funnel results and then continuing to work all of those deals that then turn into something and not being discouraged by all the no's, but knowing that the no's will lead you ultimately to a yes, if you're disciplined doing the right sets of things. I think that's, that's a key one. I think early in my sales career, I, I would get discouraged um, uh, by the losses. And then that would make me more tentative and trying to then, you know, sort of sell to the next person. And that, that's really tough for a, really tough for a salesperson to be successful, I think. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I believe it. Uh, tell me about your transition into sales leadership. What was behind your decision to pursue that path? Yeah, well, some of it was some of it was intentional and some of it was sort of non-intentional in the sense that before my MBA, I had I had done uh, I'd been a rep, I had been a sales ops person, I had done channel sales, I had done some alliance management, so sort of a, a whole mishmash of things, but all effectively um, individual contributor type roles. Then when, uh, after MBA, I worked for a company called ZS Associates, um, which is a, a very sort of quantitative uh, sales and marketing consulting firm. They sort of made their name in the pharma industry in the early days um, and was started by a couple of Northwestern professors that had done some really interesting computer modeling around like the traveling uh, salesperson problem, um, which was a, a real thing in pharma back then. And so I, in that job, I was able to work with sales leaders um, from a variety of dif different industries and companies about some of the challenges that they had about their Salesforce size or their Salesforce structure or what they were asking the reps to do or trying to balance compensation versus opportunity. And so I, I started to get exposure uh, to more and more of those types of questions. And then what ended up happening was uh, one of my MBA classmates had joined a, a startup company in Chicago. And this was, this was when I was at ZS. And, and at some point in consulting, you have to make a decision about like, I'm going to be a career consultant and try to pursue the partner path or like, I'm going to go do something else. Because the lifestyle in and of itself, particularly back then, can be a demanding lifestyle in terms of travel and work hours and all those types of things. It's like, it's, it's sort of like, if you're not really willing to go, go to the end, um, it, it sometimes can be difficult to, to sustain that for a long period of time. I had a young family at the time. So anyway, I decided to join this startup company. I just sort of caught the bug because I had a lot of success around my career at tech companies. So I caught the so oh, we'll go do this company. And in that company, I was more of a, I guess what we would call today like an account manager or like our customer success where we had these big programs that we had onboarded with effectively no revenue and we had to try to get them to a place where they were generating tens of millions of dollars of, uh, of revenue and so I had started to figure that out and then eventually I was able to build a team as part of that and then I did another complete 180 which was I went to uh, Wayfair at the time with CSN stores it was named Wayfair um, and ended up managing, basically being a general manager of a bunch of websites, um, right. did that for a period. And that's where the sort of the, the next sales manager thing sort of happened by almost by accident. So before the show, I asked you if you had like a crazy or interesting story from your career and you shared a little bit about Wafer. Can you share that with our audience? Yeah. So 
this may be one of those little bit of like, you know, preparation meets opportunity that we, that we were talking about earlier. So I was managing 20 or 30 websites that had to do with renovation and home improvement. And, you know, we, back, that was before we had Wayfair.com. So we had at our peak five or 600 microsites, like all the way down to like all rooster decor.com, I think was the most ridiculous one. Um, but I had ones like every vessel sink and, you know, like, uh, concreteequipment.com. It was, it was a whole, it was a whole variety of, of different things that, that we were doing there. And what we, we did a lot of business in lighting. We did a lot of business in, in plumbing fixtures. And as you started to look at who was buying, you would eventually start to see, you know, a hundred orders that was, you know, a single light. And then someone would show up and buy 50 lights. I'm like, oh, that's funny. Why'd that person buy 50? Or you would see people, oh, they buy, you know, 10 a month type of thing. You're like, well, who are these people? What are they doing? And, you know, they're, as you would expect, they're electricians, they're contractors, they're interior designers that are buying on behalf of somebody else. And so I was able to convince my boss to sort of, you know, secretly uh, give me a couple of customer service people so that we could call into these folks. And, and the, the guess was that if we just treated them nicely and gave them really good service, that we could increase the amount that they were buying from CSN Source at the time, now, now Wayfair. And so we, that was the hypothesis. And so we, we'd spent some time, like we blocked off, you know, a few days and we were just banging the phones. Like, you know, we, all three of us were calling, I was helping them on their calls and it was just a complete bust. <laughs> I mean, we, uh, people did not really want to hear from us. And, um, you know, it was, it, it, I, it was pretty discouraging, honestly, but there was something there. Like there were a couple of conversations that was like, there's, there really is something to this. And so after a bunch more of those calls, we were able to get a few people to say, okay, fine, I'll call you. Like, I won't do it on the website. Sure, we'll look at it hurt. Like, you know, you'll be at my beck and call. And we were, we were absolutely at their beck and call. And so we were then able to prove that, you know, hey, we were starting to get a little bit more revenue out of these folks. And then actually there was, this was an ongoing argument for years about whether we were really driving incremental revenue or whether we were just sort of taking money out of one pocket and putting it into another. But eventually we proved, I believe beyond a shadow of a doubt, um, that this was an incremental program. And then we basically said, all right, we're, we're doing this. And so we, we added a bunch more reps. We started to add the management tier. It grew and it grew and it grew. Um, and then I actually went to run our, our UK division um, for a couple of years. And then that this thing just sort of went um, and started to grow and grow and grow. I came back and it was actually in a, in a finance role away for, for a while. And this little, you know, sort of random side project all of a sudden was a hundred million dollar division um, of Yesware. But it sort of gotten a little bit disjointed across the various ver divisions. And so we decided, well, let's, let's consolidate it and let's, you know, put a general manager um, in charge of that. And let's try to see if we can grow it. So I actually took it back over again at that point. And we, you know, we grew it from, you know, we maybe had a hundred people at that point, and then we grew it up to, you know, about 500 people and almost half a billion in revenue. Um, That's amazing. Years. And now I think there was an article in Architectural Digest, my, the, um, uh, this woman, uh, Margaret Lawrence, that took it over for me, has done a great job. Now it's a billion and a half. Yeah. That's amazing. That's an incredible story. Thank you for sharing that. That's unreal. Um, what was the toughest part about your transition from salesperson to sales leader? Well, you know, there's, um, you know, the old, uh, the old uh, joke about the, 
about the sales guys that go on a hunting trip. I, I don't know if I've heard that. All right, I'll try to tell it succinctly, but there's um, uh, there, there was a, there a group of guys that used to go on this annual hunting trip and every year they go to this, this fancy lodge and in Canada and they would provide the, the guns and the dogs and the, the, the whole thing. And so um, they go on the first year they go, they're like, Oh, I got, you know, I got a great dog for you. His name's salesman. Like he is aggressive and he goes out there and he'll, he'll, he'll get it. You'll, you'll get all the, all the foul back for you. Like, don't worry about it. He's awesome. So, so they go out and they have a great time. Like salesman is like on top of it. He's bringing all the, he's bringing all the birds back. He's, he's great. Um, they go back again, same experience. And then um, the, the third year they go back, they're like, okay, like we're salesmen. And the, and the manager said, oh, you know, yeah, salesman isn't, isn't, um, isn't available anymore. Like, Why? What happened? Well, like he did such a good job. We changed his name to sales manager. And now all he does is sit around and bark all day. <laughs> I haven't heard that. That's pretty funny. I think that's, that's, that's pretty back in, in sales lore, but I, I think it, it's actually not that different from um, it, whether you're like a, just a manager in, in sort of any role, like the, the, sale, the salesperson versus sales manager, I think is not that different in the sense that when you're an individual contributor, you can sort of will yourself to success in, in many cases, but when you're a manager, the you know, and if you think about the average ratio of or coverage ratio of a manager, it might be one to seven, one to eight. I think a lot of sales teams tend to run a little bit, you know, even more aggressively than that, maybe one to 12 or one to 15, you know, you, you see in some, in some cases. And so if you think about like your contribution, it, it becomes very, very hard to will the whole team to success in that environment. Like your success is really going to be a function of what the people on your team produce. And so you have to then, you know, have a mindset shift away from, uh, from I'm going to do this myself to like, how am I going to help everybody else get this done um, and get better and better and better? And I think for, it might be particularly hard for salespeople because it's such an individual contributor, uh, high, you know, visibility, high metrics, you know, um, to, to make that transition versus maybe some other roles. But I think fundamentally, the transition is the same. Uh, that you have to make. And so it's like, it's really, can you, uh, can you become a facilitator of people versus a executor of um, individual um, plans and, and, and conversations? Um, right. So right. that's the point. Now, when you joined Yesware, you were in charge of sales and marketing. Um, tell me about your first 90 days in that role. What was your focus over those, those first months in your role at Yesware? Yeah, really, we were trying to diagnose what was going on with the uh, with the sales or sales and marketing organizations. Largely, the company was not at that time achieving the results that they wanted, um, or that the investors thought um, the, the company was uh, was able to achieve. And so, a lot of it was really digging into well, like why are we not achieving those results? Like going out and talking to customers, um, talking, you know getting on sales calls, talking to the reps, talking to individuals, talking to other people in the market to kind of get their point of view. But really the, the first 90 days was mostly about trying to understand the current situation and, and what, what was working and what wasn't working. Is there, do you use that strategy when, whenever you come into a new role or was this different experience for you? Um, I try to, I mean, I think there's, um, there's a, 
one, one thing I try to do when I enter into a new role, and I can't remember where I first heard this from, it might have been from um, uh, Carlos uh, Ghosn, who was the old uh, uh, Nissan um, CEO, who was like, it was sort of in the news a couple of years back about the whole extradition thing and all that stuff. But I'd, I'd seen him speak. Um, he came to uh, he came to Yale one year and sort of gave a talk about, you know, some of his experiences and then like, cause he was like the turnaround guy. Right. And so he, he talked a lot about that experience and, and how, sort of how, how you do that. And, um, and so one of the things I try to do when I go into a new situation is I try to meet with as many people as I can. And, you know, you try to, you try to ask, um, I mean, a couple of questions can be pretty interesting. One is like, what do you hope that I'll do in this role? But then also asking the opposite question, which is, what are you afraid that I might do? Right. And those usually, if, if they come from a, a place of sincerity, can kind of get people talking. And then, you know, there's, there's other questions that, depending right. on the situation that you might want to ask um, everybody um, in yeah. a more pointed way. But I, I find that asking those two questions of people, um, at least internally, often produces um, enough that you can start to hunt down some hypotheses. Right, right. Oh, well, that's tremendous. Um, you had both sales and marketing. I know for a lot of sales leaders, it's very tempting to take on additional roles like, hey, I want to own marketing as well. What advice do you have for those people that are considering, hey, I, you know, I want to pull in marketing and, and take on more of a role in that area? Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I tend to be a fan of somebody on the revenue side owning both of those functions only because they're they're so intertwined and when you when you have uh, a split there you often end up i think misallocating resources across a company and like the most obvious example of that is when you get um say like a heavy outbound function like an str bdr team which effectively is a marketing channel right. um but it may or may not be working as well as other marketing channels that are, that are working, but it's like the sales team refuses to let go of it because they don't trust the marketing team to then deliver other leads. And so you end up in this position where um, there's probably a better overall mix for the company, but because of these artificial boundaries, you know, and then, you know, now with sort of the rise of rev ops and, you know, more and more systems like that, marketing and sales, have, you know, need to work. They've always needed to work well together, like, but it's never been more important now with, you know, largely digital experiences and people showing up into the funnel being better educated um, than, than they ever were. And so I, I think that's a, that's a good thing to try to pursue, particularly as you're, as you wanted it to take um, more and more responsibility for revenue in an organization. I, the thing that uh, people need to, maybe that are coming from the sales side, really need to be attuned to is that modern marketing is extremely quantitative. And if you are not analytical and quantitative, um, it's going to be hard, I think, to do that job successfully. Um, you know, it's like the old days where it's, I mean, we, in some ways, maybe, maybe we're going back to this with some of the third party cookie stuff, but, um, you know, it's like the old adage about like, well, you know, half of my advertising budget is wasted. I don't know which half. It's not so much true anymore. Um, there's there's an there's a tremendous amount of data that that is now flowing in, and, and you can see that um, the folks that really do a good job with this can accelerate their revenue much much more quickly than than the ones that don't. And so while you know you maybe don't have to be so good that you're actually executing these things, like you minimally have to be able to recognize 
um, exceptional analytical and execution talent in that area. And I think it's hard if you're if you don't have um, uh, some at least you know base level of quantitative skill and interest in that area. I think you're it's sort of going to be hard to, to be successful in, in that. Um, so that's something that if you don't have it now, you got to figure out ways to to try to get that you know as part of your career. I mean, the other thing that you see um, in some sales orgs. Um, is you've got, and I think it's, it tends to be maybe sometimes more of the big enterprise ones where it's like the, the hierarchy is the, the bigger the deal is, the higher the person is that sort of takes it um, versus in a, in a uh, more of an SMB motion. It's just, it's very parallelized. You don't get salespeople, you know, sales leaders parachuting in on deals so much. And so I think in some of the bigger, more enterprisey types of um, uh, functions, you end up with people that lead that way because they end up being the best salespeople. They never fully relinquish um, the selling side. And, but what ends up happening then is that you sort of outsource everything quantitative to sales ops. And that, that is one way to, like, it can work well that way. We've got a very strong operationally minded and quantitative sales ops person paired with a really strong revenue person. Um, that can work. But then when the, when the sales leader then wants to go run the marketing department in that same way. I just don't, it doesn't, doesn't work as well. Right. Uh, it, right. it, it, my sense. Yeah. I think, yeah, that they are, they're fundamentally different in, in many ways, but they have to be fully aligned and connected. And I think that's the struggle. I think people maybe underestimate, at least that's what I see in my world. Yeah. Right. And it's way better when they are. So, oh, if totally. you, you know, if you can get a leader that understands both parts of it or can learn both parts of it, I think, as an organization, you're going to end up achieving better results. But some, you know, it's these are you know tough. They're sort of diametrically opposed in many ways. Um, at right. least what people believe about the fundamentals of them. And so it's it the it's hard to find the people that can kind of cross both sides. Oh yeah, totally. Let's talk CRM for a minute. When it comes to CRM, and I think I know your answer. Do you mm -hmm. love it or do you hate it? Um. Yeah. I, you know. I, I I guess at the moment I see it as sort of a necessary evil. Um, you know, and part of the yes, we're value proposition is that we're sort of taking your email activity and passively syncing it into the CRM. Right. But I think it is, we look, you know, I, I mean, for as long as systems like CRM have been around, there have been issues with adoption. Yeah. Um, and, you know, if you think, I think back to, you know, doing an Orem, uh, install, you know, CRM installation as part of the task force in my first job and how things really like in some ways haven't changed that much over time. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think of all of the, all the major CRM systems as being, they were designed in an in-person first world. Mm -hmm. And they were also, I mean, a lot of the, the fundamental design principles of CRM came from a time when not everybody had an email address not every company had a website. And so like the, the ways that you identify people and like all the data, you know, sort of challenges that come up over time. I think, you know, many of these things are artifacts of the, of the fact that you had these things that were designed for a simpler world that are now trying to adapt to a more and more and more complicated world. That's now a remote digital first world. And so in my view, there's, there are systems opportunities um, to, uh, build something that has, you know, accomplishes some of the same goals as CRM has traditionally accomplished, but do it in a, in a world that recognizes that um, it's a digital first remote selling first world um, versus an in-person first world. I love that answer. It's, it's, 
you know, what I see, there's such a need for tools like Yesware because the, the core, the, you know, the big players out there just don't, they don't make it easy for the salesperson. They're, they're not really enabling the salesperson. They're tracking the salesperson. And to me, it should be all about enabling. I want to make their job easier. I want to make them more efficient. Um, I want to motivate them. I want them to look at us as like, hey, this is a tool that's going to make me more money, bottom line. And so many fall on their face in that regard. Yeah, I mean, like how many times have you heard, oh, our, the data in our CRM is a mess? Oh, yeah. yeah, all the time. That's usually one of the first parts of the conversation I have with people is we've got crap data, we usually use another word. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and it's just, to me, that's a symptom of the overall disease, you know, and, and uh, so it's unfortunate. It's, it's why I started my business is that I just drives me crazy that CRM is done so poorly at so many companies. Yeah, yeah. When it doesn't have to be, you know, there are great tools out there like Guessware and other tools, you know, that can really uh, just make it easier for your team to do what they need to be doing. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, the other the other thing that, I mean, sets the, the founding principle of Yesware uh, when Matthew and Cashman originally went out and raised money for it was this idea that, like, we're building software for salespeople. And what they heard from a lot of the investment community was, like, there's no such thing as that. There's right. CRM, but CRM is built for managers. It's not built for salespeople. And if you think about, you know, like, the, all the early selling processes that I was part of years and years ago was like, well, like, you know, look, like your rep is going to walk out the door with a Rolodex of people and all the information. And then what are you going to do like that? I feel like that was the main selling proposition um, for CRM in the early days, along with, you know, pipeline management and, and some of that stuff. But, you know, it's like now that isn't really a problem because you have all the data because you have all the emails and you have, you know, the, the Slack conversations or whatever else it ends up being. Um, and, but you, but the, the legacy of like the tool is for control, um, versus the, the tool is to help the rep produce a better result, um, has never fully been resolved. I mean, that, I, I think a lot of major vendors have made good strides in this area, but yeah. there's a, there's a design parameter that I think was missed early on. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Well, Joel, I really appreciate you coming on sales lead dog. If people want to reach out connect with you if they want to learn more about Yesware, what's the best way for them to do that? Yeah, uh, yesware.com uh, is a great place to start. Uh, we've got a, a blog that you can find um, from yesware.com. We've got hundreds and hundreds of articles uh, from, about sales productivity and how to be a better seller and subject lines at work. Um, and if you, if you want to try Yesware, we've got a free tier. You can use it free forever, uh, either in Outlook or Gmail. Um, yeah, and if, if you want to be in touch with me, you can just email me, uh, jstevenson at yesware.com. Yeah, and we'll have that all in our call, call notes if you missed that. Um, and I will, I, do, I want to compliment you on your learning content on your site. I'm really impressed with that. I think that's another area where companies fall on their faces. They're not really supporting their customer base with meaningful learning content. You guys do a great job. And we appreciate that. Yeah, we've got a great team that, that works hard on, on developing content and uh, it's something we're really proud of. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, again, thanks for coming on Sales Lead Dog. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was great. As we end this discussion on Sales Lead Dog, be sure to subscribe to catch all our episodes. On social media, follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram.
Watch the videos on YouTube, and you can also find our episodes on our website at impellercrm.com forward slash sales lead dog. Sales lead dog is supported by Impeller CRM, delivering objectively better CRM for business, guaranteed.